You're listening to Women Making Waves. I'm Linda Ness. And I'm Susie Thorpe. This is the programme that highlights women's achievements. And we're going to introduce you to women who are making waves. In this edition of Women Making Waves, we will speak to Kelly Anstey, who runs a successful tax consultancy. And Kelly decided she wanted to be an accountant when she was just 10 years old. And Charlotte Payne is encouraging us to eat insects instead of meat. Louise Etoch from the band Flaming June is looking for women to take part in a video for a song she has written about the 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage. Linda chats to Kelly Anstey, who decided she wanted to be an accountant at the age of 10 years of age and now runs a successful tax consultancy. Kelly chatted to Linda Ness about her enthusiasm for tax. Tax is boring, I guess, to most people. Um, It has a reputation for, you know, your standard gentleman with some grey hair and some glasses and perhaps a little bit of jargon that might put people off. I knew at a really young age I wanted to be an accountant. Yeah, I was 10, we'd done a... I know it's really unusual, you can ask 18-year-olds now and they're still not sure. Even if it's you as a brand, you can still sort of brand yourself. People do like to buy from people. Need fans, we all need fans. We all need fans. (laughs) So, you know, they do the influencing for you. Kelly Anstey is described as an accountant that breaks the mould. She founded a firm called Taxwag, and a look at their website informs that she sets out not only to help self-employed people handle their tax, but offers much more. Kelly, accountancy tends to have a reputation of being, you know, sorry for saying this, but a little bit dull. (laughs) (laughs) I get the feeling that you're trying to change that. Yeah, one day at a time. Tax is boring I guess to most people Um, it has a reputation for you know your standard gentleman with some grey hair and some glasses and perhaps a little bit of jargon that might put people off I think I'm probably the only one that actually enjoys sitting down and watching webinars learning about tax but you know (laughs) someone's got to do it I'd I'd like to see myself as sort of the bridge between the law and actually being compliant and sort of doing what you need to do so I like to make it fun and interesting because yeah ultimately tax is boring it's not an unfair statement to make so how did you get started I know that you ran a blog and you were giving advice initially. Is that how you kind of got that off the ground? Yeah, I'll be honest. When I was pregnant, I couldn't really think of a good business name. Um, So I just went with what my blog stood for and people already knew it anyway. So it did help. I knew at a really young age I wanted to be an accountant, though. You did? Yeah, I was 10. We'd done a... I know it's really unusual. You can ask 18 year olds now and they're still not sure. I um, There was a budgeting exercise we'd done at school and they showed us sort of the cost of living and the different types of jobs and different incomes you could have. And I see that accountant was sort of near the top with a big 60 grand figure. And I thought, cool, that's a lot of money. And that was, you know, when I was 10, so in 1995. Um, and I said to the teacher, what's an accountant? And she said, it's somebody that's good at maths. So I went home, told my mum I wanted to be an accountant. And luckily she knew someone who did then place me later on in life in a full time job. <laughs> that's amazing. 
So was it the 60 grand salary that an accountant gets? That uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I come from a council estate background, so obviously money was quite up there in terms of what I wanted to achieve in life. And I did genuinely enjoy maths, I still do now, so why not do something you enjoy? Do you know what? It's perfect, isn't it? When you find a job that you really enjoy doing and it pays quite well as well. What could yeah, be better? that is the aim of life, I guess, living it the is. dream. <laughs> it, is, it is, you're absolutely right. So you ran this blog and you got a bit of a following on the blog. It is a good way to be recognised, but is there a conflict between giving away too much information free of charge when you've got these blogs? There's a balance, I think, with almost anything in business. Um, I do believe in helping anybody. So even if it was sort of a free bit of impartial advice, even if it wasn't for an actual client, they're going to remember me as somebody that if that comes up in their social circles, you know, who's a good accountant, I may well get remembered and get work that way instead. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I sort of like to put teasers out there and just make people aware I might not write the whole ins and outs of it. Obviously, that would prompt them to contact me. That's what we do. I think it is quite good. It's a little bit like if you're a baker and you give away little samples of your wares. That's a really good analogy, yeah. It is. I'm now the baker of tax. (laughs) (laughs) You like sweet things, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what advice would you have to someone starting up their own business? Because I know that's something that you deal with a lot. The advice I'd give to a new startup would be, you know, hold yourself accountable. Make sure you're checking your accounts every week. You know, if they're in an online software system, that shouldn't be too difficult. You know, you can have an app in your phone nowadays that will tell you what your profit and loss is. Um, And check that cash flow and your profit and loss every week. If you've got a business plan, um, refer to it every now and again. As I said, keep yourself accountable and make sure that whatever it is you said you wanted to do, you've done. And, you know, if you didn't budget for it, plan for the next quarter or the next six months and see how that's going to pan out instead. I think now nowadays also having a google presence is really important so if you've got your recommendations online it adds to your authenticity to the service or the goods that you're providing even if it's you as a brand you can still sort of brand yourself people do like to buy from people mm-hmm. um, and i think once your personality is out there you know it's a bit like mama you like it or you don't shortly i'm going to be launching my youtube channel with my video blogs on there so i think there might uh-huh. be a little bit more interesting than the standard blogs i know people don't really like reading too much nowadays um, and i just want to talk to people and explain to them about the new things that are coming up and what they can expect from the tax world. I don't think a lot of people actually realise they've got to start doing their books every three months next year. Every um, three months? Yeah, every 90 days. So there'll be like a little submission to do, then a summary four times a year and then you'll be able to do your tax returns. So yeah, quite a big change. 60% of businesses don't even know it exists. I'd like to say that 100% of my clients know that it exists and they're ready for it. So yeah. comfortable position to be well, in. That's a moment. bit of a shocker. It would put me off. The thought of all this technical stuff because if you're if you want to set up business and you've got a passion and it's something that's not to do with money at all, it's some passion or other, it does put you off because there's all this scary stuff that you can go to jail for or yeah, get big fines yeah. if you get horribly wrong. I think with the making tax digital stuff, there are some good opportunities in there for businesses. Like There's opportunities to pay your tax early. I personally don't think that's going to be helpful for the startups. 25% of the country is currently self-employed and I think what the government are actually trying to do is deter people from becoming self-employed because think of the so? tax advantages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it would be great if the whole country was self-employed. But, yeah. you know, there's pluses and minuses for employment and self-employment. I do believe that if you're going to be self-employed, you need to be made of a certain structure. It's not easy. No. Um, I think the revenue do understand that. So why not throw in a few sort of hoops to jump through in the process? If you've got a good accountant and you can trust in them completely, then these sort of things shouldn't be an issue and they shouldn't be a deterrent at all. Although the revenue will try and deter anyone 
But then that costs as well. The very time that you need a lot of advice is when you're starting up a business. Yes. And that's the very time that you don't really have any money because, you know, you've probably got a chunk of money that you set aside to see you over the first, you know, few months. If you're very fortunate. If yes. you're very fortunate. <laughs> it doesn't always start like that. No, but yeah. it doesn't. So that for these people, they need advice. But advice, to be honest, it doesn't come cheap, does it, really? I feel that the accountancy preparation side of it due to technology is actually decreasing. Like you can automate a lot of the bookkeeping stuff nowadays, which actually frees up your accountant to be an advisor. So I feel like it's sort of hand in hand. There are firms out there that are going down the advisory route and charging a lot of money for it. But as you said, for startups, it's not always helpful. I mean, there's a lot of things to help startups. There's government grants, there's apprenticeships, you know, you can get money that way as well. There are third parties you can also get money from if need be, and you don't necessarily need to have a trade in history. So Mm -hmm. I think banks are the thing of the past in terms of helping businesses set up. And you were talking about doing a YouTube channel as well. Yes. Yes. That's quite interesting. It's something I've considered for a little while. So I think it's the time now in this day and age to crack on with it which social media channels do you use at the moment i love them all (laughs) social media geek i've been doing social media since about 2004 there was a really really early program called face party and then there was myspace i'm sure there'll be a few older heads out there that can relate to those platforms the ones that i generally get the most work from i think due to my age it's uh, twitter and Facebook, there's a lot of, you know, my current friends and family on Facebook. So if anything pops up in a group and they need to recommend an account, and there's been times where I've been recommended sort of multiple times in one post. So inevitably that person contacts me, which wow. is quite nice. I don't really need to do the marketing myself my clients and friends and such like and that's for me. just the best position to be in isn't you it you need fans we all need fans, we all need fans. <laughs> so yeah. you know they do the influencing for you i'm trying to sort of come up on the snapchat side of things just because i'm aware that you know the kids at school at the moment are the future they're going to be the ones that are self-employed running their own businesses you know with technology at everybody's fingertips nowadays there's no stopping anybody really if you've got an idea and you want to run with it Literally, you can, as you said, like money does come into it sometimes. Um, but again, there's just so much stuff out there. I don't think people are aware of how much help you can actually get. Now, the Internet is so resourceful. You've also been running educational workshops in schools and for businesses. It's something I've always wanted to do from a young age. I've always wanted to go into schools and speak to them about mostly finances. I saw a lot of my friends growing up and people that I knew when I was younger and they were too quick to sort of run into a store and get a store card or a credit card and then a few years down the line they've realised they're probably not even going to be able to get a mortgage in years to come. I mean the credit side of things has changed slightly nowadays but yeah I'd just like to help people you know they don't teach you about business plans and cash flow and you know in business there's a really good saying you know that you want to maintain that profit is sanity and cash flow is king and I just don't feel like the youth of today are aware of that at all. No you're absolutely right I remember getting a store card when I must have been about 19 or 20. Mm, We all done it Yes, (laughs) yes we did, it was a clothes score. I very quickly realised that the clothes that I'd bought were actually costing far more than they cost Mm. because of the interest so I decided immediately I was going to pay the thing off and never use it again and I have never done that again well maybe you should come with me to these uh, educational (laughs) workshops sound like you learned the same lesson I did I I could stand in rags next to you and say this is what happens get one story (laughs) 
So you enjoy doing things like that, do you? Yeah, like? I really do. I go to different schools. Uh, they have different formats. There's lots of different children there. Some of them, you can just tell they're ready to work. A lot of them, you know, they're not really sure what they want to do in life. And I think that's okay. I, think, I find it's unusual that at my age, I did know what I wanted to do. I do appreciate that that's not normal at the age of 10 to know where you want to go. Not to be an accountant. Yeah, and also it's a bit unusual. A stewardess. Or, or a footballer a or a vet or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. No, Kelly wanted to work with maths and being. Um, but yeah you when I started training it was quite difficult to become an accountant for example you know I was working full-time and I was doing an apprenticeship so for me to study it wasn't as though I was sort of doing college and then going home I was going to work I was doing only 16 days at college throughout the whole year and the rest of it was sort of home learn and work experience and um, I had to travel all the way to Norwich so I'd be up at six in the morning be back at eight o'clock at night you know back then buses only run hourly in Cambridge so Mm -hmm. it was a long long day for me and then I'd have to sort of study and pass my exams as well. But you must have been really really keen to have done that I think these apprenticeships are absolutely brilliant I went to an apprenticeship evening with my daughter recently and there was a girl there from a big accountancy firm you know one of those very very massive firms and she was saying that actually she would be slightly ahead of people that had gone off to university exactly to do the degree and without the big debt might I add and without the big debt hands on far more experience slightly ahead of the game would be more senior than they were when they started and more employable as well you know there was there's times where you know someone may well be qualified and want to come and work with you but if they don't know how to deal with people or you know that sort of stuff it becomes a little bit difficult I would say that if anyone wants to get into accountancy skip the whole university thing and just go and do the work experience and get an apprenticeship because you don't end up with the big debt You talked about the talks that you do at schools and for businesses as well You also do other charitable outlets as well In terms of the actual firm we donate 1% of our turnover to charity These charities are recommended by our clients by the people that we know and there are also people and businesses that are close to my heart so for example we donate to the mind charities the one for mental health we donate to the children's hospice as well just as I said you know the winter comfort in Cambridge too anybody that really needs help like I do believe in investing locally we've sponsored an under 16s football team and our most recent one was actually you probably wouldn't imagine an accountancy firm to do it is we sponsored a boxing match in Cambridge and it was amazing we had such a good time it was a really good networking event as well and I actually got quite a lot of business off the back of it so yeah that oh, was I, quite nice at the same time you I know? think it's very <laughs> fitting you know I think most people once they've completed their tax return do feel that they've done 10 rounds in the boxing thing <laughs> you don't even want to know how I feel on February 1st every year trust me it's just like I need a holiday (laughs) but yeah I don't think this January is going to be like that I've yeah I've that I'm that far up to date now that everything's in hand so we're at the stage where I'm not looking to grow right now but I may well do that in the sort of next two years um, main reason for that I'll be honest is just I've got a three year old and I want to spend a lot of time with her before. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that there's got to be a fine balance between family commitments and earning your crust you know I do enjoy working but at the same time I want to spend a lot of time with my daughters but I'll keep my energy levels up I'll make sure I'll take certain times off work to make sure that I can sort of rebuild myself mm-hmm. um, but yeah I just really enjoy it I'm lucky to be in the position that I'm in. It's been great speaking to you, Kelly. I think you've got the right balance and the right mix. What you just said about keeping your energy up by having that balance between life and work, perfect. Thank you very much for joining us today, Thank Kelly. Thank you for having me. Linda, I cannot believe that 
Kelly Anstey had a passion for tax at 10 years of age. Well, it was, it was a passion for accountancy, but I think driven by the fact that she thought it was going to earn her a lot of money. But it is very, very young to make up your mind what you want to do and actually stick to it. You know, I remember when I was 10, I wanted to be something, but I have no idea what it was now. You know, you normally grow out, you go through phases, don't you? There's the nurse and the, the doctor and, and all the vet. You know, that was a big one with me for, for, for a while. And all these things. Mm. But she she had it, it was right from the word go and even uh, she got support from her parents, didn't she, that that's what she wanted to do? Well, right? yeah, I mean, I think when, when she grew up, when she left the school, her mother knew somebody and managed to organise some kind of work for her. But uh, she worked very hard by the sound of it. And she is she's really great, very, very enthusiastic about what she does, really mm. loved her. But she doesn't want to just make money for a business. She wants to give something back, doesn't she? Oh, the absolutely. Community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's very into the charitable side of her business as well in order to give back to the community. No, she's very, very keen to um, to talk about that. I actually like the way she wants to guide school children and how to run their own money. Mm-hmm. And that's something I don't remember being taught at school. No. There's a lot more people trying to do that now mm-hmm. and introduce schools and children to literally manage their money. I think it comes from the home as well. I know it's a great idea that it's done at school. I think it also comes from the home and how your parents are with money. And I suppose if you have parents who are spending the money that should go on food, for example, on other things, then potentially you're going to follow suit. So I think it is a great thing to go in and do that. And I think she's doing, you know, and she's the kind of person She's very down to earth and likeable and listenable. So I can imagine teenagers really relating to her and enjoying hearing what she's saying. I also like the, the life-work balance that she talked about at the end of the interview. I think that is really key. And I think a lot of women are much more enthusiastic about doing this than men are. Or maybe men just don't think they can do it. What do you mean that she's trying to balance it? And- yeah, she's try- she, she makes sure that she spends a a decent amount of time with her daughter and I think that's great Mm, because a lot for a lot of us if you haven't got your own business maybe it's more difficult if you're working structured hours you know nine to five and travelling time over that so it it leaves the family life it makes it far more difficult if someone's got a dental appointment or you know or or just needs you there to take them places So do you still think it's a women's issue then? I do think it's a women's issue yes I think there is the thought that men the male job is somehow rather more protected in, in that um, in a lot of a lot of families, I think, and that women, their, their job is more expendable, perhaps. You're listening to Women Making Waves. Now, I'm really not sure if you're going to be enthused by this idea, but here goes. Charlotte Payne is doing a PhD on the potential environmental health and socioeconomic impacts of an increased demand for edible insects. There seem to be a lot more insect companies springing up can provide an alternative to meat, and meat is something that is really destroying the environment at the moment. Some kids will just be so enthusiastic, fascinated and excited and wanting to try them and wanting to eat them. I even heard of a cricket milkshake once. Oh. <laughs> Cricket's sort of hidden in amongst the Oreos. You ask people about the insects they eat and they respond with great smiles and offers of going out to collect insects with them, offers of cooking them for you. Charlotte Payne is doing a PhD on the potential environmental health and socio-economic impacts of an increased demand 
for edible insects. Charlotte has just been awarded one of the Vice-Chancellor's Public Engagement with Research Awards from Cambridge University for her work around edible insects. Charlotte, what gave you the idea to do your PhD, or in fact to study in the first place, the subject of eating insects? I guess it all goes back to when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge and I was studying chimpanzees, wild chimpanzees. Now there's something that we can all relate to. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a lot of fun. (laughs) And as we were following chimpanzees around, we saw them eating lots of insects. And this was something that I thought was really interesting and particularly in the context of actually lots of people eating insects in that part of the world as well. Mm -hmm. And I started to read up about it and realised that it's not only an incredibly sort of deep-rooted culture that I think has been around with humanity and also our closest living ancestors for millions of years, but also it's really something that's fascinating. It can help with breaking down cultural barriers between people, I think, in the same way that all foodstuffs can. But particularly, it was that actually... There is such potential for insects as a food source that could not only break down these barriers, but also can provide an alternative to meat. And meat is something that is really destroying the environment at the moment, the production of meat. You're absolutely right. Too many cows, trees being knocked down, all of that kind of thing. Now, many people, certainly in the UK, they they recoil in horror. And and I am probably one of them, as we said off air before we started this, that the idea of eating an insect is really an increased demand for edible insects, do you think? Can you see this spreading? I've seen it spreading in the last seven or eight years since I first started getting interested in this, yes. Really? Yeah, there seem to be a lot more insect companies springing up all over places like Europe and also North America and Canada. And there's a lot more interest in this in both the research field and in the business field. Are they powdering them down so that we can't really see what they look like? Some people are certainly taking that approach, yeah. So um, I even heard of a cricket milkshake once. Oh. <laughs> Cricket's sort of hidden in amongst the Oreos, um, which, which is one approach. But I think that well, a lot of the fun comes from finding out about the, the whole insects that can be eaten and the ways in which they can be prepared in a way that actually celebrates the taste of the insect rather than hiding them. That's something that I was reading about, actually, that there's a whole new set of flavours out there that come from insects. I'm assuming you eat insects yourself when you have yes, nothing tried else quite in a the few. fridge. <laughs> <laughs> when Tesco's is out of stuff. <laughs> so do you like them? Yes, not all of them. <laughs> which, which are your favourite insects to eat? Um, giant hornets would certainly be up there. I, I was reading something you'd written about giant hornets and we'll put a link to this article actually because it is absolutely brilliant. You were in Japan, I think, were yes. you? Yeah. And you went on a trail looking for hornets and you were dressed up in a great big huge white canvas outfit yes. because of course they're really lethal, aren't they? Um, yes, well, certainly. They, I've never actually been stung by one myself, but I've seen the results of stings. And I did have, they got some venom in my eyes once, which was incredibly painful. Really? So, yes, I think that, um, yeah, they're responsible for about 40 deaths a year in Japan. And I believe that even if you're not allergic to bee or wasp stings, because of the amount of venom they discharge and the way that they're incredibly aggressive. So if one comes at you, others will be attracted by the pheromones it secretes and come at you as well as a sort of combined effort to fight the enemy. So they can be really frightening, yeah. <laughs> and they're quite big as well, aren't they? Yes, they're huge, yeah. Ugh. But you went hunting hornets. Tell us about that day. 
I've, d- I've done it lots of times, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, okay. I was there for two years, so we went on quite a few trips. Um, but the very first time was, that was interesting because I didn't really expect to be scared, to be honest. I thought it was going to be fascinating and exciting and exhilarating, but I didn't expect the amount of fear I would feel when we eventually like got to the nest and started digging into it and all the hornets just rose up and were completely beating me like they were I don't know it was like having lots of miniature fighter pilots sort of hitting into your hitting the um, protective clothing and the protective clothing itself was homemade so (laughs) you know we'd layered up with duct tape and things but it was difficult to know how far it could be trusted so yeah that was quite exciting. Well, you've written it really, really well. And as I say, we'll put a link to that article. And I would highly recommend that you read it. Split into two, that article, isn't it? And I'd highly recommend that you read both parts of it because it makes a really, really good read. Does it cause hilarity among your friends, the fact that you that you eat <laughs> that you're um, this topic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And it's had, it, it's interesting because sometimes I'll be invited somewhere and I'll turn up just you know with a bottle of wine or something and they'll say why haven't you bought any insects and people will be genuinely disappointed no one asked (laughs) but if if I'm asked I do try to bring them oh you do what do you go to the garden and dig them up or (laughs) I have quite I mean particularly because I work in parts of the world where people collect huge quantities of the insects and dry Mm. them or preserve them in other ways I usually bring some back with me from trips so that I can share them with people here (laughs) Great. (laughs) Now, on a serious note, do you plan um, to work in this sphere when you've completed your PhD? I am keen to continue in this field. I'm particularly keen to continue looking at insects and agricultural systems and insects in particularly tropical parts of the world, because that's where I think there's a lot of potential for maybe potentially helping with livelihoods in developing countries, Mm -hmm. and but also in really producing insects in an environmentally friendly and sustainable way. Yeah, I mean, it does sound like a way forward. And I'm sure that although at the moment, you know, half the world would recoil in horror, I suspect in a hundred years time or or maybe shorter, that that will become a part of the sustainable diet. I have this feeling that that would be so. <laughs> you look worried about so that. I, I, <laughs> I was just relieved that I'm not going to live forever to see the day, really. <laughs> but you know what? It's interesting because... When I've done work in schools with insects, the reaction of children is very malleable. So although you get a few, and I don't mean malleable in that I'm trying to change it, it's more sort of I'll bring out insects. And some kids will just be so enthusiastic, fascinated and excited and wanting to try them and wanting to eat them. And if it's the more kind of vocal kids that have that attitude you sort of see the whole group suddenly get really excited and try the insects as well. So I think it's something that can be celebrated and can be a lot of fun. And if it's approached in that way, it's actually, it's a really positive way of looking forwards. But of course, if it's approached in the, oh no, are we going to have to eat bugs? (laughs) I'm probably far too old to change my ways now. I can't see the odd cricket passing passing my lips. But I do appreciate, actually, that I can see... I mean, I'm, I'm vegetarian almost. Not totally, but almost vegetarian. And I can see that we are worried about even the dairy industry you know we're, we're worried about all of these industries and the damage that they cause the environment yeah so i can see that this although in its own way probably would grow to such an extent that it too would it would in the end be a danger to the environment i guess so that's the problem and i think that's something that concerns me a bit when i see things like for example the cricket milkshake that we were talking about earlier because 
that is not replacing the burger that goes with the milkshake. That's simply a novelty add-on yeah. that means we get more protein, which we don't really need anyway. We've got quite a lot of protein in our diets. And it's actually almost going to just add to the environmental destruction or also seem like a solution for people, like an easy solution. But the easy solution isn't to eat insects. The solution that's going to work isn't just to eat insects, but is to combine that with really cutting down meat and dairy intake and relying a lot more on plants and plant-based protein as well. I love the fact that people who are working in this sphere are called entrepreneurs. <laughs> I thought that was a, that's a brilliant title. Yeah, <laughs> or I read that somewhere anyway, and I think I think that's that's absolutely brilliant. Is it this uh, this sphere that's made you travel? Because I noticed from your writings that you've been travelling a lot. We mentioned Japan, but you've been to other places as well, Burkina Faso, and I think yep. it looks like you've been to lots of places. Is that all to do with the, the insect? Uh, <laughs> um, actually, <stuff>. yes, insects. <laughs> Firstly, it began with chimpanzees, but yes, insects have taken me to a lot of places, a lot of exciting and interesting places. And everywhere I go where people traditionally eat insects there's something that's celebrated so it's a really wonderful thing to go and try and do research on because you arrive and whether it be Japan rural Japan or rural Burkina Faso or rural Mexico you ask people about the insects they eat and they respond with great smiles and offers of going out to collect insects with them offers of cooking them for you and yeah it's, it's a joy to do do they know that we're kind of going you know as as a race over here the europeans we're all a bit kind of Ooh, not 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 too sure about that do they know that or or do they just think it's normal that everybody would be eating insects well it's something that a lot of people talk about actually not just in terms of um, people in Europe but actually in urban areas urban centers in those countries as well so again in Japan and in Burkina Faso and Zimbabwe you get people worried about the increasing attitude of urbanites which is very similar to the attitude you're describing which mm -hmm. is oh well these you know those are just sort of countryside people doing things that we don't think of you know it's not modern people are quite worried about that because they're worried that it might it might lead to a loss of a lot of indigenous knowledge about the insects and also it's a loss of appreciation of something that's been quite well an important part of food culture in those parts of the world Yes, it will be, I suppose. It will have gone back through the generations and from father to son, mother to doctor, they'll be taught how to find them and how to cook them. Yeah. And in Japan, you actually had to learn Japanese or you wanted to learn Japanese, presumably. Yes, yeah, I learned Japanese on a Daiwa Anglo-Japanese scholarship just after I graduated um, from Cambridge. And yeah, I was. that was a lot of fun. <laughs> it would be a lot of fun, I can imagine. Are, are you pretty proficient in Japanese? I'm terrible now compared to what I was. I try to keep it up. So I try to stay in contact with people in Japan. But yeah, it, it's hard. I'm always keen on opportunities to go back there and do some more work there. I can imagine. Thank you very much, Charlotte Payne, for joining us today and telling us all about insects. Fascinating, fascinating subject. <laughs> so now we're just off to have some lunch. Is it going to be a wasp? <laughs> Is it going to be a well, grasshopper? You know, there's a lot of wasps around this year, so... There's no stopping this woman. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charlotte. I loved the piece where she said there's been an increased demand for insect eating, and especially the cricket milkshake. Now, that <laughs> yes, just sort of... She didn't approve of that, you see, because what she was saying is that's a bit gimmicky, and she's right. She said that's not replacing the meat 
on the plate. Mm, that's true. That's a gimmick. Whereas what she's talking about is is eating insects in a way that will actually replace your steak or your, your meat, your pork and so on. It just reminds me of Let Me Get, it, get Me Out of Here. Uh, it's not something that would appeal to me, as you heard me saying in the interview. Maybe, though, it's because... I'm too old to get my mind around the whole thing and I'm not used to it in my culture. I mean, obviously, if you're brought up eating, you know, moths and things, then, you know, I dare say you'll find it fine. How many people in the UK have been brought up eating (laughs) insects? (laughs) Probably not that many, actually. Probably just Charlotte. Well, I don't think Charlotte was brought up eating insects. (laughs) I think she just found it an interesting topic, you know. Um, She she said she was working with chimpanzees to begin with. Oh, okay. So, um, But you said that when you were doing the interview, you were scared that she might bring in some insects? I did. I did confide that to you um, afterwards. (laughs) Yeah, I was slightly worried that she'd walk because it was lunchtime actually that I spoke to her and I had just had this this weird feeling that she might you know prefer something and go would you like to try that and of course I was thinking oh no I'm gonna to have to say no I'm vegetarian thank you very much <laughs> which is a kind of am you're listening to women making waves Louise Etock is in the band Flaming Dune. She talks to us about their latest single, which is about the 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage and how she wants to find women to take part in her video, which will highlight what women are fighting for in 2018. Linda and I, together with Rebecca Newman-Matthews, met up with Louise and asked her about the project. The story of the suffragettes and the suffragists, they changed society so much. I wanted to keep the lyrics unambiguous. You know, 100 years since the vote was won is the opening lyric. I wanted it to be very in-your-face and obvious about what it was about. I see it, it's their song that I kind of collated. We want people to get in touch with us about the reasons why they're still marching in 2018. very special project at the moment. Tell us all about that. We've written a song called The Women's Battalion to celebrate Vote 100, which is 100 years since women over 30 were given the vote. And we've released it as a single. We're going to raise money for the Pankhurst Centre Museum in Manchester. But we want people to get involved because we realise that although we're honouring the legacy of the suffragettes and the suffragists who sacrificed so much all those years ago, we're recognising that people are still marching today. So we want people to get in touch with us about the reasons why they're still marching in 2018 to kind of collate a snapshot of where we are today. So honouring the past, but also recognising recognising that there are still things that need to be done. I think that's a fabulous idea. I actually. do too. And I love the song. So the track's called The Women's Battalion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is part of an EP yes. that you're releasing, but this is the single, and it's coming out October? October the 5th, yeah. yeah. The other thing about this song is that you are going to be 
developing a video to go with this. And this is quite an important issue for you, isn't it? Not an issue, a project. It's a, yeah, it's a project We because we want to make a historical document. Um, we've submitted the song to the Pankhurst Centre Museum because they've got an exhibition that coincides with the unveiling of a new Emmeline Pankhurst statue in Manchester. So they're doing a big exhibition where you can submit contemporary things to remember um, 100 years ago and they've actually asked us to submit our song for consideration and they think it might be accepted because there aren't any other songs there's lots of paintings there's lots of poems and but um, they've said there's no other songs so we've submitted it to them so that sort of gave me the idea well let's make a contemporary snapshot of where we are today with what people are still marching for um, so we want people to get involved to let us know what they're still marching for so we can sort of collate a snapshot of the campaigns and the causes that people are still marching for today and presumably the this would be things like equal pay for women and equal rights in, in the workplace and everywhere else as well. All those things as well. And particularly um, since we've released the song, we've had people from the WASPI campaign contacting us about the pensions inequality and the way that that's been handled by the government, which, from what I've read, is pretty appalling. People have been given no notice whatsoever and they've suddenly realising that they've got to work an extra five years. So they've been in touch and they're heavily sort of got behind the song and they've written a review of it and they've posted it on their Twitter feed and things. So, um, yeah, various people who are still campaigning for things are um, getting in touch. And um, I've worked with the Freedom Programme in the past. Um, I released a song for them. If you don't know who they are, they support people who've been in domestic abuse relationships. And they've tweeted the song as well and they're encouraging people to get behind it. So... We're kind of hoping, you know, little ripples making bigger waves that more and more people get behind it and get in touch, tell us why they're still marching and we'll be able to create this video to go with the song that's honours the past but also recognises the present. So that's a really interesting thing because your songs are, well, I love the actual titles, but there's a there's a message in every one of your songs and the reviews you've had very recently that you and the quotes here, your story has never been told. Opening in this track, one of your singles, Freedom Fairy Tales for Girls, that is a brilliant <laughs> title. It ain't the witch that you gotta watch. It ain't the witch that you gotta watch. It's Prince Charming. And I only just discovered that this morning when I read yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And, and I, it's the sort of thing that I was telling my own two girls that we listen and watch Disney World films, but actually the message is really twisted, isn't it? Very much so. And that's the song I released for the Freedom Programme, actually. I went to one of their conferences and uh, I walked in and they and they were singing the lyrics of uh, Rumpelstiltskin back to me. I won't play your games, Rumpelstiltskin. They've been really, really supportive of my music because I think they relate to it. They know what it's about. I wrote that song for my daughter's Freedom's Fairy Tale for Girls. That was for them. So, yeah. A lot of projects are through other means, sort of like documentaries or, you know, TV projects. So it's mm. great to have a song. I think so. Yeah, it's another way of, of reaching people. You mentioned the raising awareness of domestic abuse and supporting charities and you've been doing this since 2010 mm. through your music mm. and I suppose it's a very very natural way to do it. One of the reviews has said that you've drawing effectively on folk tradition and you're adding it with a modern twist and so obviously you were talking about that earlier about your contemporary side. Mm. So you're really trying to pull the history and bring it into a modern day twist 
And it's a good message. I love history. I've always been fascinated with history. I definitely love the idea of songs that tell stories. They are my favourite songs. I grew up listening to those kind of songs and that's they're the bands and that's the music that I'm drawn to. I love a song that tells a story that has a purpose, not just sort of some frivolous I met a boy in a disco thing that's never you know, spoken to me. And I think if you can sort of tell history stories through music, it can draw in an extra audience that maybe wouldn't know about it otherwise because they maybe wouldn't read a book about it or... So I think it helps. And you're actually putting women back into history again, which I think has been written out quite a bit. Well, yeah, um, I think women have been written out of history and um, the the Pankhurst Centre Museum that we're going to send all our profits from the single to, I mean, that's only open two days a week, I think, max. So for me, that, you know, the story of the suffragettes and the suffragists, they change society so much. The fact that that's kind of like a little museum that doesn't really receive enough funding, that kind of sends a message, well, actually, that it story... says it all, doesn't yeah, it, really? <laughs> it does. It's sort of, well, that's a little story. that, But actually, it's a massive story. It's huge. It changed society massively and you know, should be given the recognition it deserves. Mm-hmm. When you were writing the song, did you know what you wanted it to sound like? Over a weekend, um, I already knew a bit about the suffragettes and the suffragists, but I sort of Googled them and just read loads and loads of things and I kept getting this kind of message of deeds, not words and source for the ganders, source for the goose and and there's another one, injure no one, take no life, etc. And I kind of pulled them all together and I was thinking about it and I was thinking, actually... This is probably the first women's army because they were an army. They they were like a military operation. They were like, you know, they were terrorists in a sense or freedom fighters, depending on how you want to look at it. And I thought, actually, they were a women's army. And then I was watching this footage of them marching through London. And uh, so I got that line, the, the women's battalion and then the rebellion. And I, it just sort of came to me and the song built around that chorus and then I basically pulled in their words. So I see it, it's their song that I kind of collated and put to a tune. Um, a lot of the lyrics are words that they actually spoke in the campaign. Mm, that's what I like about it, actually, yes. There, there's that real connection with what they were doing mm. back there. I love that. The things that they did and, and the sacrifices they made, I certainly didn't know the full extent until I read around it. And, you know, the, the force feeding that they suffered. And in the book I read, it said that at least four women died as a direct result of that. And obviously then you've got Emily Wilding Davidson who, well, there's um, different arguments, but a lot of people think she was trying to pin the banner onto the horse. Like she didn't intentionally kill herself. She tried yeah. to pin a banner onto the horse. She'd bought a return ticket for that event so you know evidence suggests that she was planning on going back home she became the martyr of the cause but there were others I mean people suffered hideous things mm. but they never gave in you know no. through thick and thin never give in that was their motto and no and they would set out to actually become arrested as well yeah they, and, and then not eat when they went in there and it was quite extraordinary really yeah definitely they I think they they used the media very skillfully and intentionally wanted to draw attention to themselves and put themselves in these situations. But if you think about what they were arguing for, just to be equal, Mm. that's all they wanted. They didn't want someone else's land or 
borders to move. They just wanted to be equal and, yeah. and they suffered all of those things. So you obviously placed yourself in a sort of situation now where you're promoting some very valid things here, and especially mm. for 2018. How much resistance do you get from outside parties? Yeah. Does it feel an easy process to you or do you feel you still get a few, why do you want to do that now? We're, we're past that. We're, we're on equality now. Yeah, like I get a lot of that from my children, interestingly, because uh, I've got two girls who are 13 and 15 and they say to me, oh, mom be quite of your feminist stuff they're always saying that oh you're so embarrassing <laughs> but I kind of you know in some ways I'm I think great you know if you don't if you don't feel that great maybe things have really changed and I think for their generation it will I think they will have a very different experience and hopefully it will be less noticeable to them but I've grown up with what I've grown up with those kind of injustices little things that have been drip 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 mm. all through your life build up to be a big thing mm. and I still think you know, we can't just go, oh, it's done, because in so many ways it isn't. Then you've got things like the the pensions thing that's going on at the moment. I mean, you know, in a, in a cynical way, you kind of think the government thought, oh, you know, they're women, they'll just take it in a way. You know, there's part of you that thinks that, but they're certainly not. I mean, they are really being very vocal and the, and the mainstream media are starting to pick that campaign up now as well, which is which is really good. The message that you want to get across from your songs, because they're very inspiring and they say all the things that some people think about that don't know how to interpret. And you're doing it in a song. But from your point of view, what are you trying to get across? What would you like a listener to think when they've listened to your song? What I hope I try and do is capture the things that people maybe struggle to express, you know, the things that make you angry and the things that make you frustrated. I try and sort of put that into a song and hopefully people will listen to it to become inspired, to think, you know, I'm not on my own. And if we come together, we can achieve these things. So it's kind of bringing people together. I've written songs about experiences that are very isolating. And, you know, I have written songs and people have messaged me and said, thank you so much for that song. Because music brings people together and inequality and abuse and all those things isolates people. So I'm trying to sort of use music to to pull people together and and make them feel like they're not on their own, I guess. And also for people that really don't have an understanding of this current year, Mm. that are actually giving them an opening as well, especially younger children too. Yeah, for this song, I wanted to write a really, really simple song. It's so simple. There's only three chords in that song and it's a real kind of like rabble-rousing song of the people and, and I wanted it to be that because I was thinking, okay, if people hear that, the Women's Battalion, might they think, oh, what's that about? And maybe learn a bit more about it. And I wanted to keep the lyrics unambiguous you know 100 years since the vote was won is the opening lyric I wanted to be very in your face and obvious about what it was about in the hope that people might go and read about it or think what was that about and and think about the impact that they had. Work-life balance I know it's a very cliche thing to say we all try and strive to do everything and anything as Mm. a woman how do you work it out what what are your priorities when it comes to this passion of yours and a very successful passion I might say too you're well regarded in reviews but how do you try and keep a balance in life thinking I can't do it all yeah that's that's probably my biggest challenge um we've just recorded the EP that we're going to release and we did it in the summer holidays because in actual fact every single member of Flaming June is a teacher so that works out pretty well because we had that six week block and we recorded the songs and now we're obviously all back at work it's a bit kind of but we've done the hard bit you know we've done the recording and we sent it off to an amazing producer um, at Edge Spear Music who's who's mixing them and he's almost finished doing it so 
I kind of have to block it really and go, okay, that's going to be music and then that's going to be work. And the children are a little bit older now, so it's a bit easier. When they were younger, it was very much more difficult, but they're old enough now. If I've got a gig, you know, I can pretty much leave them. They're old enough to be left and I've got friends and relatives who could pop in and make sure they're okay. So it's getting easier to manage it. This EP is called The Firework Maker's Door. That's right, yeah. And that is coming out. We're hoping to get that out by the end of the year. Louise, the video itself, you're about to start getting this together. Mm-hmm. Are you needing any help with this? Yeah, we would love to have help. I mean, none of us are filmmakers. None of us really know what we're doing. I think it's important to create this video. So if anyone who's listening, you know, is passionate about what we're trying to do, which is in effect create a historic snapshots of what women are still marching for today. If anyone has any technical expertise in filming or editing and they wouldn't mind giving us a bit of their free time to get involved, that would be fantastic. Okay, well, let's hope uh, there's somebody out there listening who'd like to do that. And if there is, do get in touch with Flaming June. What are your social media Uh, So our main website is flamingjune.co.uk and on all the social media networks, we're at Flaming June UK. Brilliant. And of course, if you can't remember any of that, get in touch with this show as well and we'll pass that information on. Thank you, Louise. It's been lovely having you here. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you. Wow, Linda, what an amazing lady Louise Etock is. Yeah, she's great, isn't she? Mm. Um, I've known of her for a long, long time because I've been listening to her music for a long time. Uh, Loved meeting her. She's fantastic. And love this project that she's putting together. I think this is a fantastic idea. Mm. The idea that we're in the 100th anniversary of when women, some women got the vote, not all of them, but some women got the vote. But it was a bit of a breakthrough. So, you know, great, a step forward. And the fact that she's putting this project together fantastic mm. love the idea love the song mm, the song's great uh, the question I ask is it I mean I hope it is and even if it isn't is it a unique project you know the only piece of music recently that's commemorating or remembering the women's suffrage 100 yeah, years ago I don't know yeah. I don't know it'd be interesting to hear of any other music um, mm. projects like this but love what she's doing and um what we really need are people to step forward and say what women are marching for now. So if anyone has any ideas, we really do want your ideas about what you what you want to change in society, about being a woman, what you're fighting for, what you're marching for. Yeah, I mean, it's a great title, The Women's Battalion. Mm. And we also want to get across to all the female editors, male or female, if you think you would like to be interested in helping Louise Etock make this fabulous film for her new single, The Women's Battalion, get in touch. Yes, because it's great, great music. I mean, that's really inspiring. A fantastic visual to go with it. I mean, that is just going to be amazing. Yeah, and we like, as you say, the, the message it's getting across and hopefully people will learn from that. It's not just a text, it's a song mm. and it's wonderful to hear a song. We learn from songs, I'm sure, as much as we learn from just reading. Well, we'll be following this project closely and uh, maybe report back to see how it's going in a few months. hundred years since the vote was won And years before the battle begun
Women Making Waves will be back on the 6th of October here on Cambridge 105 Radio. And in the meantime, you can contact us on Facebook and Twitter at WomenMW and on Instagram, Women Making Waves Radio. Women Making Waves is a jibber-jabber production 